can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I believe they said it was in, on page uh, 969 of the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you could take that Bible as a gift from us. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. This is the Word of God. It says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by the cunning, your thoughts would be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if somebody comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with this readily enough. Let's pray. Father, God in heaven, we thank you for your word. And now we pray, Lord, that as uh, we review these texts, that your Holy Spirit would guide us in your truth. Your word says it in all of our weaknesses that your power is perfected, Lord. And we pray that we can lean on that power today. We pray that. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a painful reality in Christianity, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a painful reality that my wife and I have experienced probably more than we would like to, to remember. And I'm sure it's a reality that many here have experienced. That reality is when a dear brother in the Lord, one that professes that Christ is their all, uh, one that you have poured your life into, that you have close fellowship with, one that's a member of the church maybe, one that, that, that uh, is exposed to the truth of the word of God, one that maybe even is a teacher. And the reality is that that dear brother or sister would be led astray, would be led astray by seducing spirits that are teaching Doctrines of demons led astray from a seer and pure, sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is a heartbreaking reality, something that we could wish that the church would never experience, that our brothers in Christ would be duped by false teachers. But the reality is that we do experience this. It is a sad reality. It is a reality that, that all churches face. It's a reality of this church. I titled the message, A Sincere and Pure Devotion to Christ, because that is Paul's concern for this church. That's Paul's concern for all churches in Christ Jesus. That is the idea of these texts that I just finished reading, that they can be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's concern. If you look at verse 28 of, uh, here, in verse 28, the apostle Paul says, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Tremendous. In chapter uh, 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 in, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he says that the anguish of childbirth 
anguish of childbirth is in him until Christ is formed in them. That is Paul's concern for all of the churches, all of the churches, as we saw Church of Galatia, Church of Ephesus, uh, uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, all of the churches, he has this concern. He has this concern because it is a reality that the enemy, the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil is at constant pursuit of God's people. And we need to understand that. They are constantly aiming their seductions at your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're constantly aiming their seductions at you. At you. In Acts chapter 20, um, in verses 28 through 30, the apostle Paul tells us that this will happen. And he's talking to the Ephesian elders on his way back to Jerusalem. He says in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers is uh, episkopos. It, they are to lead and direct and protect the church. And it says to care for the church of God, which he obtained. He purchased the church with his own blood and listen to this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after themselves. And then he says, therefore, be alert. Be alert. There it is. This will happen. And it did happen at the church of Ephesus. He exhorted Timothy to go and retain the sound doctrine at the church in Ephesus. Even leaders, a couple leaders that he calls out have came in teaching false doctrine. And the sad reality is, this is one of the churches in Revelations 2, it says that this church's Ephesus had lost their first love. And this is what the apostle Paul is dealing with in this letter to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church here has come under attack, under attack, under the curse of false teachers. Paul calls them false apostles. A couple times he calls them super apostles in his, uh, um, super apostles. They're false teachers teaching damning doctrines concerning Christ and concerning his gospel. And Paul's not real specific about the false teachers uh, but by his defense, as we read through these chapters, we could surmise more or less what they are. We, first of all, we know that there are Jews. We know that there are Jews because in chapter 11, verse 22, in 11:22, he says, uh, uh, they are, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So apparently that they were priding themselves in their Hebrew roots. But also, by looking at his defense, uh, uh, these false teachers were also project, projecting a life of power, a life of prosperity, a life of proficiency in the here and now. In the here and now. That you can have victory in the here and now. And that is much different than the weakness and dependence on Christ's strengths, which are the hallmarks of Paul's ministry. 
They were much like the prosperity teachers of today that criticize biblical Bible ministry. And there's many of them. And if there's some here today, I'm sorry, but we teach the Bible here. We teach the Bible here. So what they're proclaiming in their boasting, and the Apostle Paul in chapter 4, he rebukes them for their boasting. In their boasting is, uh, was another Jesus, as we see in, chapter, in verse 4, another, a different spirit and a different gospel. Heresy. We call that heresy. Okay? A whole other gospel. And the Corinthians, the problem with that is that they were giving these false apostles a platform. In verse 4, it says, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily. You give them a platform. So he's rebuking this church because he loves this church. Now, it's the, Paul, it's the Apostle Paul's aim to resolve, uh, to, to rescue this church from these deceiving spirits. And here Paul feels forced to do something that he hates to do. He engages in the foolishness of boasting. The foolishness of boasting in order to expose the lies of these false apostles. And to show that his ministry... His gospel are the truth of God. The truth of God. And Paul could barely bring himself to do what he's about to do. He thinks it's foolish. It's totally against his character. But he, see, he seems to think that he needs to do this. He sees that he needs to do this. He needs to show a comparison of himself and his ministry against the one of these false teachers and, 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 and these false apostles and these super apostles, as he says, refers to them sarcastically. And really, this boasting leaves a bad taste in his mouth. Look at verse 17 of chapter 11. It says in verse 17, what I am saying with his boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but what? As a fool. As a fool. In verse 21, he says, But to my shame I must say, we are too weak for that. But whatever anyone else uh, uh, dares to boast of, I am speaking a fool. I also dare to boast. And then in chapter 12, verse 11, he says, I have been a fool, but you forced me for ought to have been commended by you. I ought to have been commended by you for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles even though I am nothing. Even though I am nothing. So even though he finds this boasting distasteful, he's willing to sacrifice his own dignity if it means that he might be able to rescue the spiritual his spiritual children from this damning heresy and keep them loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this opening verse of chapter 11, 
is a plea for the Apostle Paul to excuse him for his foolish boasting. He says in verse 1, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. That word wish implies that it's something that is very hard to do. It's hard for them to excuse him. He's asking somebody to do something that is difficult for them. He recognizes that is, is ridiculous, that he recognizes that that is not who he is. He said, that's not me. I understand that it's hard to listen to, but please humor me. He says, do bear with me. And it's interesting that in these, passage, in these passages that the Apostle Paul refers to himself as foolish. He refers to himself as jealous. And he also refers to himself as afraid. Paul, he is foolish, he is jealous, and he is afraid. Three words that are completely uncharacteristic of the Apostle Paul. But with those words, he is modeling how a, the faithful servant of Christ reacts when those in the church are led away by false teaching. And because Paul planted this church and they're his spiritual children, a lot of people identify this text, uh, these verses pertaining to pastors or, or to leaders. But I believe that they're not. I don't think that that's the case. It's not only for pastors, but it's the responsibility of the church, of the members to care for the flock, to care for one another. It is a flock themselves. We are all ministers. And 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a holy priesthood. We are all ministers of, uh, of one another in the church. This is for all of us who have pledged Membership covenant with Tri-City Bible Church. This is for all of us. This is what we all need to be doing. Okay? Now, how does this play out? The Apostle Paul says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you. A divine jealousy for you. He says, bear with me with my foolish boasting because I am acting out of what? Jealousy. Right away we say, jealousy, what? Isn't jealousy a bad thing? Isn't jealousy negative? Well, jealousy is described in, in, in Galatians chapter 5 as one of the works of the flesh. Jealousy. Jealousy is stirred up from from a whole host of evil things, mistrust, insecurity, uh, longing to possess something that somebody has and wishing that they didn't have it. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 34, it said, For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. In Proverbs 27, Proverbs 27 Verse 4, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Being filled with jealousy is like being filled with anger. It, 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 it makes you do things that you wouldn't normally do. It makes you 
react and say things that you would normally do. But what all this is, is sinful human jealousy. The pettiness, the pridefulness, coveting jealousy. But as you see in the text, Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. A divine jealousy for you. Other translations refer to it as a godly jealousy. Literally, it's translated, I have the jealousy of God for you. Paul is experiencing the very same jealousy that God experiences. And you guys are saying, God is jealous? God is jealous? Oh, yeah. Our God is a jealous God. Our God is a jealous God. Scripture is clear that God is jealous. In Exodus 20, verse 5, after God gave the second commandment, he says, I'll start with verse 4, it says, you shall make for yourselves, you shall not make for yourself carved images like anything, likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. He is a jealous God. So this prohibition to idolatry is consistently grounded in God being a jealous God. It's attested to in many passages in Scripture. What God says to Israel after the incident of worshiping the, the, the golden calf, there's the incident of the golden calf after they received the law, they start worshiping this even before Moses comes down from the mountain. So Moses intercedes. God is ready to restore the covenant with Israel. And God exhorts them saying in Exodus 34, 14, he says, for you shall worship no other God for Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. His name is Jealous. Jealousy is so part of who God is that he declares that his name is Jealous. And when God reveals himself as Jealous, he's talking about the kind of jealousy. And understand this. He is referring to the kind of jealousy that protects his love relationship with his people with his people. Israel, his church, throughout scripture, the Lord presents himself as the husband of his people. The songs we sang, we're talking about the bride of Christ, that's his church. But in Isaiah 54, 5, God says to Israel, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Ephesians 5 and uh, Revelation 19, the church is identified as the bride of Christ. 
This is why in the Old Testament, Israel's idolatry is often called harlotry, adultery. Jeremiah 3, 9 says, because she took her whoredom lightly, talking about Israel, a light thing, she polluted the land committing adultery with stone and tree. Stone and tree. Harlotry. Idolatry seeks satisfaction and in, in worshiping something that is not God. And that is to commit spiritual adultery. Let that sink in to put something before God, something before the God that you say that you love above all things, you're committing spiritual adultery. And just as we would expect a husband to be jealous for his wife if her affections are enticed by another man, so the Lord is jealous for the faithfulness of his bride. And church, who is the bride of Christ? We are. We are the bride of Christ. God is jealous. He is jealous for the undivided devotion, the exclusive affection of his bride, of the people that he has joined himself to in salvation, and he cannot tolerate spiritual adultery. And Paul says to the Corinthians, that is jealousy that I have for you. When, when you tolerate the teaching of these false super apostles. That is the jealousy that I have for you. When you allow yourselves to be seduced by the teaching of another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. Paul's saying that his love and compassion for his church compels him to be jealous for her, to protect that love relationship to have jealousy that drives him to what? Foolish boasting. Foolish boasting. So Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Then he says, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Hmm. Here Paul uses an illustration of a betrothal. He sees himself as the father of the bride. Paul views himself as the spiritual father of the Corinthians since he is the one that planted the church and he was their first shepherd in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Verse 15, he says, though you have countless guides, countless teachers in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he considers himself the father 
spiritual father of this church. Paul views himself as the spiritual father of the bride. And at the same time, the church as the spiritual bride of Christ. And Paul has betrothed his daughter to this heavenly bridegroom. Now, in Israel, the betrothal was a marriage contract. It was basically they're married. You're married. It's, 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 it's like an, being engaged. It's like an engagement, but it's much more binding. You literally had to get either, either death or a divorce to, 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 uh, 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 to separate, okay? Because it was legally binding. Patrol. And during the patrol period, it's most likely a year, there was certain responsibilities for the husband and for the father. One of the responsibilities the husband had was to prepare the place where he was going to take his bride. Our husband is preparing a place where he's going to take his bride. But so, so that was the husband's role. During the uh, betrothal period, the father, the father had a responsibility as well. The father's responsibility was to protect his daughter's purity, to guard her affections for her husband and to ward off, to reject any potential unlawful suitors, okay? That she remain exclusively faithful to the man that she was promised. That was the father's duty. You see some of it in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Paul says he has betrothed the Corinthians to one husband, to the Lord Jesus Christ, through the gospel, through the gospel. And during this betrothal period, what it is at the time between their conversion and Christ returns for his bride, Paul sees it as his responsibility to ensure that on that day he can present all the believers in Christ as a pure virgin. To protect these saints from what? Spiritual adultery. Sheep, this is not for pastors only. This is not just for the apostle Paul. This is a strong message to those of us who seek to serve Christ's church. We are all have been betrothed. We are all in this waiting period and we, were all, we are all spiritual priests, ministers of this new covenant, ministers of reconciliation. We are all called to sacrificial ministry to this bride, to the bride of Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is the body. This is the bride of Christ. As much as Paul is invested in the holiness of his fellow believers, this is where we should be. This is how we should be. You as believers, I want to ask you a question. What is your reaction when you hear that one of your brothers in Christ has been led astray from false teaching? What do you do? Do you criticize him? I knew he wasn't a believer anyway. What do you do? Do you do anything? How about physical adultery? in the church. 
You say, well, that's different, you know. No. They're both tragic. They're both tragic. They're both painful. The church is one of the safeguards that the Holy Spirit of God uses to help brothers and sisters not to commit spiritual adultery. That is our responsibility. The ministry of one another in the fellowship of the faith. Brothers and sisters, that's why fellowship is so important. We are called to to love each other. We're called to pray for each other. We're called to protect each other. In Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another. Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 2. 10, verse 24 and 25, it says, do not reject the fellowship of the saints. Fellowship, brothers and sisters, is of the utmost importance. We need fellowship in the body of Christ. We need, I'm going to tell you this, genuine fellowship. You say, what's genuine fellowship? That's not just coming here on Sunday and leaving and saying, ah, I'm done with God for this week. It's to have true fellowship. My question is, do you have that? Do you allow brothers and sisters to come into your life, to know your life, to come to your house, to see what you do, to help guard you against spiritual adultery? Fellowship that your brothers and sisters feel so invested in your spiritual well-being that they steam with godly jealousy when they see that you are enticed and led away by false doctrine. Brothers, that is a blessing. That someone would be so concerned with my spiritual well-being to feel it enough to have a hard discussion with me foolishness. Bear with me. Engage in that discussion. We need to be, when mature enough though, not to say, you know what, mind your own business. No. We're covenant together. You are my business. I love you. I care for you. I welcome those hard talks. I need them. We need to be mature. Not to say, yeah, you know what, you mind your own business. That's foolish because we need each other. We are a body. We need to take seriously our calling as ministers of this new covenant. God gave you gifts. God gave you gifts, and it's by the working of those gifts that he grows his church. And he says, each member doing their work. That's how the church receives its growth. So verse 1, he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. 
For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin. He says, but I'm afraid. But I am afraid that as a serpent, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is why Paul is aroused to jealousy because he is afraid. Imagine the apostle Paul being afraid, first of all. He got stoned in Lystra. They, they cast him out of the sea for debt and he went back. That's how afraid the apostle Paul is. He says, I'm afraid that you would be led astray. That Satan is going to uh, deceive them into infidelity, into adultery. That they would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is being a Christian. If you want to know what it is, what it is to be a Christian. Why am I a Christian? What is a Christian? It is somebody that has a sincere and pure devotion to who? Christ. Sincere is a word hoplites. It's translated as singleness or simplicity in other translations. Single-minded versus double-minded. Or, or simplicity as opposed to duplicity. It is a single focus, an undivided focus on the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. Our Savior. This does not mean just Sunday. This means every day. We need to have our devotion to be exclusively for him. In serving him. In enjoying him. In pleasing him. In, in finding our satisfaction in him. And in sharing him the gospel. It is an undivided affection for him, keeping yourself only for him. Does that sound familiar? As the wedding vow says, forsaking all others and keeping ourselves. That's Christian. We have a sincere and pure devotion for Christ, teaching them to do all the things that I have instructed. And in Luke 1, I mean in Acts 1, he says, you know, all the things that I began to teach you in my first treatise, and then he continues to. Why, how does he continue to teach? And how does he continue to protect? How does he continue to provide? Through his church, us. A pure devotion means non-polluted with any adulterous idolatry or, or, or false doctrine. So undivided affection and a pure devotion. That, brothers and sisters, is Christianity. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Single-mindedness, pure devotion to Jesus. Finding satisfaction in no other. We are whose? His. By his grace, as we heard earlier today, he purchased us. Okay, if the worth of something you buy is based on what you paid for it, what did it cost him to purchase us? First Peter 
chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed, you were purchased from, uh, your, your, uh, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things. You weren't purchased with silver or gold, it says here, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the lamb without blemish or spot. What did it cost him to buy me? If it cost him that, brothers and sisters, you are priceless. You're priceless. You can put no price on you because he paid it all. Acts 20, 28, as we saw, he bought us with his own blood. The worth of Jesus makes us cry out, for me to live is Christ and to die, gain. As it says in Philippians, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, I indeed count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Incredible. Where else can we go for salvation? Where else can we go for satisfaction? Where can we go, Lord, Peter says? You are the one that has eternal life. Church, do you know Christ this way? Are you yearning to know Christ this way? Do you love him? Does your heart cry out with a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus? Is that so? Or is your mind so filled with the enticements, enticements of this world that you are pulled away, that you are led astray? Know that that's the enemy's desire. And that's what Paul's afraid of. He said, you will be pulled away. That's what I'm afraid of for the sheep here. No matter what ministry you're in, if you're a sheep of God, we are preoccupied with your holiness. If that's the case, if you are enticed by what this world is offering, then repent. And as we see in Revelations 1, the church, return to your first love. Or maybe there are those that have never known him. Listen to what Romans says in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth you confess and is saved. For Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no difference, no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And they said, how then will they call upon him in whom they not, have not believed? How are they to believe in him who they have not ever heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, how are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Not the feet, the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Perhaps if you don't know him today, he's calling you to repentance. And he is calling to grant you the faith to believe. So I say, if you don't know him, turn from your sin, come to him, and receive that saving faith. Plead with him to give you that saving faith. But either way, believer or non-believer, the Christian life, the eternal life, is a sincere and pure devotion to one, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is afraid, he's afraid that, that as a serpent uh, deceived Eve, the Corinthians would be deceived. It says in their thoughts. Another translation says their minds would be deceived. It says here, I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray. Your thoughts, that is very, very important. Now, how did the serpent, Satan, deceive Eve? By his cunning, by his craftiness. He led her mind astray. Brothers and sisters, that is the target of the enemy. The enemies of God target your mind, target your thoughts. And what's dangerous is that there's so much now that we see through the internet. Understand that the enemy is targeting your mind, your thoughts by any time you go to a website. He let her mind astray. He let Eve's mind astray. That's the target of the enemy. He came with fine-sounding arguments in Genesis 3. He says, yeah, has God, or did he actually say that you cannot eat? Of the fruit? He says, you will not surely die. And there's Eve standing in paradise, not lacking anything. And she begins to question the word of God. Her mind was led astray from what? A sincere and pure devotion to God. The cunning deception of Satan. And he still uses it today. The same thing. It's just not a serpent nowadays. But it's the same spirit. If you look at 11, 
2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. No wonder that for, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise that his servants, these super apostles, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. It's no wonder. He's done that from the beginning. The seduction of the enemy is questioning, twisting the word of God to make it about us instead of about him. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Have you heard this? Why do we need all this doctrine stuff? Why are they so busy studying about all I want is Jesus. Let's just worship Jesus. Don't put God in a box. No. Doctrine theology is of the most importance in your Christian life. Satan comes for our minds. He wants to corrupt our thoughts, but in order to have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ and it's founded on sound doctrine, on what the Bible reveals Christ to be. It is founded on sound doctrine. That's the whole point of this text here. Christ can only be and only is as he is revealed in Scripture. Not as we imagine him to be. Not, oh, just give me Jesus and I can fall down and worship him. No, you need to know what Jesus you are worshiping. In verse 4, it says, someone comes and proclaims another Jesus. That's that Jesus. The one that gets all the showy lights and all this. Just give me Jesus. That's all we need. And there's no preaching of who that Jesus is. Theology. Your theology is the very foundation on which your devotion of Christ is built. What is your theology about Christ? If you don't know, stay here. This pulpit teaches it. Every Sunday. And any devotion that does not flow out of the truth of the scriptures is not a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The apostle Peter says, gird up the loins of what? Your minds and be sober. Church, we are called to a pure, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And if he has saved you, if he has called you to ministry, and he has. So if you see an attack, I exhort you today. If you see an attack, engage in a little foolishness. Have those difficult discussions because your dear brother, you know what, is worth it. They are worth it. They cost my Savior, your Savior, his life. And face the fact, it is possible that they can be led astray from a sincere and devotion to Christ. So we need to what? We need to be alert.